Good evening all to the 100th session of the weekly huddle. Most of you uh, have been either a regular visitor of the huddle or have attended the session at least once. The model has been uh, described uh, for quite a few episodes. And it is my pleasure to uh, host this uh, meeting, knowing that at least we have continued uh, for 100 episodes. Uh, every single uh, of these sessions was joined by my uh, colleague and co-host uh, Pranit, who had been there uh, since the very onset uh, of this program, right from its designing to conceptualization to execution. And uh, pretty much we both have been doing it for the past uh, 100 episodes. The first eight sessions were not recorded because at that time we didn't have the plan to record it and put it in a formal uh, database. But from session nine onwards has been recorded and uh, we upload them time and again you know, on YouTube and on uh, uh, podcast uh, for people to consume um, uh, offline as we speak that outside of the live discussion. Uh, I did start a WhatsApp group about uh, 50 episodes earlier, and that WhatsApp group was uh, uh, meant for those people who wanted to be associated with the weekly huddle. Uh, I must say that since the starting of that uh, WhatsApp group, I personally have not added a single member. It was 100% uh, voluntary, as in uh, the links were sent to uh, our friends and colleagues. And uh, voluntarily people uh, joined on that uh, weekly huddle WhatsApp group where we do discuss these clinical topics uh, outside of the live discussion. And also uh, we post the updates on uh, the weekly huddle. That is pretty much the purpose of the huddle WhatsApp group. What's interesting is that over the time, uh, the total number of uh, uh, members in the huddle group kept increasing to the existing day where we have 252 members on our weekly huddle WhatsApp group. To give you a perspective, that is about the same number of doctors as what we have on our Telangana CSI WhatsApp group or uh, uh, the Amsonians alumni WhatsApp group that I'm a part of. But as the WhatsApp group membership kept increasing, our, all, uh, our overall attendance on the live discussion kept decreasing, almost like uh, the weekly huddle is on a weight loss uh, over the last few weeks in terms of uh, live attendance. Having said that, we continued our discussion and uh, here we are at our 100th episode. I am hosting this session from Paris where I am attending the Euro PCR. It's 3.30 PM here right now. And I take pride in doing this. Having said that, we are going to uh, start our today's discussion. Today's discussion is about a clinical uh, scenario, which uh, I used to at least encounter quite frequently during my childhood and early uh, MBBS days. I really didn't know what to do with it. And now after 15, 20 years, particularly being in the field of medicine, I still don't know what to do with this. And uh, there are differences in opinion, both in terms of physicians as well as uh, general practitioners in terms of uh, how to handle these, uh, this particular situation that we are discussing today. 
so we'll try to make it a, a more practical way of addressing how we should interpret uh, eosinophil counts in our uh, routine blood work, more uh, emphasizing more on the non-oncology aspect of it. I want to uh, restrict the discussion to uh, not include uh, those hyperiosinophilic syndromes which uh, get onto the oncology aspect, uh, except understanding when we should be thinking of uh, uh, malignancies related to eosinophils. So with this uh, little update and a little uh, introduction, today's case is about a 46-year-old male. He is uh, sedentary in his life. He does have a shop that he owns, but his overall physical activity is very minimum. Uh, he actually got a master health checkup done recently. And as a part of master health checkup, he is seeing me as a cardiologist for cardiology opinion. On poking, he says he gets tired easily. He has got this exertional fatigue. Uh, he did say that it's, it feels like short of breath, but uh, he hasn't really paid attention to. And he has been having these symptoms for quite some time. He is a little bit overweight. His BMI is of the order of 28, 29. And as I said, he is uh, sedentary in his lifestyle. Uh, in his routine workup, most of the uh, numbers were normal. I'm not highlighting those numbers. You all know what a typical master health checkup includes, except a hemogram, which has got 12% uh, uh, eosinophils. Uh, the absolute number was uh, 1,100. Uh, you, can, uh, get, you can guess the TLC count was probably around uh, 10,000 or so. The rest of his uh, parameters, as I said, were normal and uh, he didn't have any other major complaints. He's non-diabetic, non-smoker. Uh, he is a vegetarian by diet. As I, uh, and I already told you, he's a shop owner. He owns a small shop where he goes to his work daily and he takes his motorcycle up to there. His daily activity is uh, quite minimal. Uh, so the discussion that we are going to talk around is how to interpret these kind of eosinophil numbers in routine assessment. Uh, the points that I want to cover is uh, what is the eosinophil value beyond which we should be acting up to what point we can ignore it. Uh, hyper eosinophilic syndromes that we identify in our common clinical practice, is there a way for a cardiologist or a physician to differentiate between what is a more benign number versus what is a more uh, threatening or a malignant number that we can act upon? Should we ignore a lot of these numbers, even if they are high, or should we do any further diagnostics? And is there a role of any empiric antiparasitic uh, drugs or any other therapy? And the reason why I included this last line is because I have seen the empiric treatment options spanning from anything to anything. You just name it. And I have seen doctors in their best practice uh, prescribing these medications, knowing that uh, uh, these occult diseases could be the one uh, responsible for this uh, hyper eosinophilia. So with this background, I will uh, start with Praneet. I always, as a customary, ask Praneet to give his opinion. And then we will ask opinion from the uh, uh, rest of our attendees. To facilitate the discussion, uh, we are joined with Dr. Guru Prasad. He is an internal medicine physician at Care Hospital. He has been at uh, Adel before. And uh, we will take his opinion as well once we hear from our attendees. 
So Pranit, floor is yours. You take up this case. Yeah. Good evening, everyone. Uh, uh, as uh, you said, Anup, uh, it is equally a grey area for me as well uh, about evaluation and uh, uh, interpreting these numbers. Uh, the thought process which I have is that uh, any ethnophil count which is more than 500, absolute ethnophil count, uh, is something significant and uh, any count more than 1500 is something which uh, is like a, a, which can be associated with hyper ethnophilic syndromes. Now, uh, this patient is apparently asymptomatic and his symptoms probably looks more related to his physical deconditioning and uh, his obesity probably may not be related to the ethnophil count. So this is an incidental finding that we found out in master health checkup. The two common things that uh, I think uh, will be uh, contributing to increased ethnophils is the history of any allergic uh, airway disease. So maybe I would ask uh, this patient whether he has any symptoms of wheezing, sneezing, any <clears throat> dryness of throat, uh, itching of eyes, something like that. Uh, so those are the things which I can kind of uh, attribute these findings to that. And maybe parasitic infestations. Again, uh, if he does not have any uh, anemia or any other findings of uh, passing worms in the stools or etc. Again, uh, less likely um, to be having to be explaining the cause. Uh, any um, uh, what do you call those um, myeloproliferative disorders? Something like those could be other possibility which uh, my understanding or knowledge in evaluation is limited. Regarding treatment, uh, empirical uh, anti-parasitic agents, uh, I am not comfortable or I haven't practiced any time. Uh, the one thing which when I uh, do give anti uh, empiric uh, antiparasitic is in in terms of anemia. Uh, other than that, for eosinophilia, I have never prescribed, so I am not uh, comfortable prescribing any. I am eager to know. And uh, evaluating eosinophilia is again something which is um, uncomfortable thing. For majority, if the counts are uh, low, you kind of reassure the patient because they are asymptomatic and kind of. Ignore most of the time, but uh, these numbers, 1000 is something which is not uh, a number which you can equally ignore. So I would suggest him to see a physician for evaluation uh, in this regard. My evaluation per se is limited uh, other than uh, what I said before. So, um, Praneet, just one thing you mentioned about uh... Uh, asking the history of reactive airway disease like allergic rhinitis, uh, breathing difficulty, whatnot, and all this. My question to you is, and this is the same question, I have it in my mind. It's chicken and egg. A person who has got uh, high eosinophil count, is it that it is the, the allergic airway disease which is uh, causing high eosinophil count, or is it something else? which is causing high eosinophil count and leading to this kind of uh, allergic phenomena. Is there a way to differentiate? Do you know? Or how do you work? Not so confident, Anup. I believe it's probably allergic airway disease which is contributing to a high eosinophil count. The issue of uh, eosinophil counts as a cause of uh, wheezing or bronchospasm, I believe that should be as a presentation of hyper syndrome where the count should be 
uh, even higher than uh, what you mentioned so in this case probably i believe is uh, maybe associated with allergic airway disease but i'm not sure i'm here to learn thank you pranit before i go to uh, shankar sir i will ask uh, vijayreddy sir sir if you can hear me could you please unmute yourself and share your experience with high eosinophil count in your patient subset are you sending those patients to a specialist or you are doing a preliminary assessment and till what point you ignore these numbers good evening everybody see eosinophil most of the times so we are seeing in uh, uh, bronchospastic conditions and uh, allergic diseases and uh, parasitic infections also we are seeing very commonly and uh, we are not seeing very high eosinophil in our practice more than 1500 very the if i find such patients i immediately i refer to the physician for further evaluation thank you so much sir i will ask uh, shankar sir to give a rundown on how we should be looking at or how he thinks when he sees a patient like this uh, particularly sir i want you to emphasize upon uh, the non oncology aspect of it and uh, what empiric treatment do you give to these patients a uh, good evening to all good evening to all uh, my heartfelt congratulations to dr anup agarwal and dr pranith uh, for conducting 100th session of weekly huddle uh, so uh, before we come to the part of eosinophils the eosinophils are predominantly they are tissue dwelling cells though they are seen in the peripheral blood but they are tissue dwelling cells whose function in the health are not entirely understood so far but eosinophil numbers they increase in a variety of disease states ranging in severity from mild to life threatening as just now dr anup alluded to uh, so when these activated uh, eosinophils they release uh, uh, mediators and also some substances that will damage the tissues and contribute to disease pathology so coming to the basics you see we see in the hemogram that uh, wbc count and uh, percentage of eosinophils but uh, for for all practical purposes it is better to find out what is the absolute eosinophil count that we will get by multiplying this wbc count total wbc count into percentage of eosinophils so that we will get number of cells normally the normal values of uh, this eosinophils are 0 to 500 cells per microliter when this uh, more than 500 if you see in the absolute uh, eosinophil count we say that it is hyper eosinophilia more than 1500 cells then uh, hyper eosinophilic syndromes when do we say the absolute eosinophil count is more than 1500 cells per 
microliter as well as there is a organ dysfunction if there is a definite organ dysfunction is there we say that it is a, a life threatening conditions most of the times that is my hyperosinophilic syndrome the major causes of eosinophilia what we see in our clinical practice if the multiple organs are affected accompanying the peripheral eosinophil peripheral blood eosinophilia then we should uh, in that uh, allergic disorders as uh, dr pranith is uh, alluded to also that allergic disorders especially the uh, skin the skin allergies the drug especially the drug hypersensitivity that history has to be taken then infectious diseases amongst them parasitic infections fungi protozoan some times even hiv viral also then third one is a neoplastic disorders either uh, we should think of eosinophilic leukemia or myeloid uh, series or uh, uh, sometimes uh, even uh, the eosinophilic uh, neoplastic disorders uh, we will think then immunological disorders eosinophilic disorders especially uh, that is uh, eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis most of the times we see in our clinical practice uh, when the patient comes with uh, uh, frequent bronchospasm uh, so churukstras syndrome uh, we think and uh, when we come across uh, GRD, gastroesophageal reflux disease, and uh, if we take uh, a biopsy, sometimes it will reveal eosinophilic uh, esophagitis. So these are the uh, common conditions we'll see in our clinical practice. Commonly, they are mostly drug hypersensitivity, helminthic infections, and neoplastic disorders. So these are the common conditions. where we get a eosinophilia and the second uh, thing is this eosinophilia is associated with some organ restricted organ restriction is there only uh, there is involvement of a single organ like uh, skin is there atopic dermatitis or allergic dermatosis there may be sinonasal and the pulmonary allergic rhinitis uh, asthma then the gidc just now i mentioned the eosinophilic uh, gastritis esophagitis so eosinophilic diarrhea also the neurological diseases like is eosinophilic meningitis rheumatological diseases like vasculitis vasculitis so cardiac diseases like eosinophilic myocarditis that may lead to eosinophilic this heart failure also so eosinophilic myocarditis so the specific organs are involved in the uh, uh, associated with the eosinophilia then having said that the multiple organs are affected and single organ is affected along with the peripheral blood eosinophilia then the hyper eosinophilic syndromes where the absolute eosinophil count is more than 1500 cells per microliter along with the organ dysfunction if it is there we say that it is hyperosinophilic syndrome and especially it is primary 
are neoplastic, myeloid or eosinophilic. If they, it, it may be secondary or reactive, that is maybe due to parasitic infections, solid tumors, and T cell lymphoma, ETC, uh, etc. And idiopathic uh, hyperosinophilic syndrome, where we don't find uh, either the neo neoplastic or reactive causes, then we say that it is idiopathic. And specific syndromes also there mentioned. Uh, uh, that is uh, just now we talked about the Churchill-Strauss syndrome, EZPA, that is eosinophilic uh, granulomatosis with polyangiitis, autosomal dominant hyperimmunoglobulin E syndrome, that is immunodeficiency syndromes, there we'll see the hyperiosinophilia where more than 1500 eosinophilic count, eosinophils for microliter. And primary disorders of the phagocyte, either number or function. These are common hyperiosinophilic syndromes, primary, secondary, idiopathic and specific syndromes. So, in this case, the patient has got 1100, uh, uh, absolute eosinophil count is 1100, and mostly uh, our uh, area is endemic for uh, elminthic infections. So, um, the commonest uh, elminthic infections, the pinworm, uh, the threadworms, uh, sometimes roundworms. So, Strangulidosis also when we come in contact with the soil, especially farmers and all. So, uh, so broad spectrum anti-helminthic drug we give that is uh, almendazole, that is uh, 400 milligrams, a single dose. Or uh, if the strangulidosis spercoralis is uh, suspected, uh, we can add uh, uh, ivermectin also. But uh, one word of caution. Uh, when we give ivermectin, especially in Central Africa and African countries, where the lower lower uh, is endemic there, that's why if we give ivermectin there, uh, that will lead to encephalopathy. So, especially in African countries, uh, the ivermectin should not be given uh, because of a, a low voices. So, uh, this is my approach towards the eosinophilia, uh, then uh, eosinophilia, the causes, the multiple organs and the single organ involvement, the conditions I enumerated and the, uh, if the organ dysfunction is there like uh, skin, lungs, uh, GI tract or nervous system or heart is there, then we think of hyper eosinophilic syndromes and we if dire emergencies are there, we give, if the patient comes with some markedly ill and comatose or dyspneic, then we resort to glucocorticoids. Sometimes the glucocorticoid sparing agents like mycophenolate, mofetil, those can be given. Uh, this is my uh, approach and if uh, uh, hematologists or uh, those who are well versed in the hematology, uh, they can enlighten me uh, in this regard, regarding the, uh, the eosinophilic uh, leukemias, 
and the myeloid series how we approach myelomonocytic leukemias so many that is the neoplastic itself is a different uh, topic we leave it to hematologists so thank you one and all Shankar sir, question to you is when these kind of patients, when they come to you, uh, do you do any kind of investigations or you first try empiric uh, uh, antiparasitic drug knowing that we are in an endemic zone? What do you, what do you typically do? Uh, what are the symptoms the patient present with? Uh, we'll see. Hmm. Then uh, suppose the patient comes with the cough, dry hacking cough and uh, wheeze is there. Then we'll investigate uh, in a different way. If the patient comes with a rash, then we take history of uh, uh, skin allergy because of any drugs, so drug hypersensitivity. So depending on the organ involvement, we'll investigate further. Thank you so much, sir. Uh, I will ask uh, Guru sir to give his thought. So. Guru sir, here is this scenario. We have a patient who is 46 year old, otherwise asymptomatic or at least minimally symptomatic. He says exertional discomfort, uh, which could very well be deconditioning as what Praneet was mentioning. Absolute eosinophil numbers, which are not terribly high, but they are definitely higher than normal. And uh, it is that black bold letter on the, on the report printout that the patient is staring at and you are staring at both. And this patient is sitting in my cardiology clinic. How should I go about it? Uh, should I put him on therapy? Should I send him to you? Or should I send him to a hemonc? Uh, how do you look at this particular case and hyperusinophilia as a general? Guru Prasad, sir, all yours. Thank you, Guru. And uh, congratulations to you and colleagues who have just been hosting these uh, sessions. Uh, this is the 100th week. And I'm really congratulated you both. Regarding coming to this topic, uh, this has been a very common uh, no, confusion among people how to approach a patient with hyperesthesia. But first, important to understand that uh, what is exactly hyperesthesia. So many of the times we find hyperesthesia uh, counts in the range of you know uh, below one thousand five hundred. It is called mild hyperesthesia. Moderate is in the thousand, but the count is between thousand five hundred to five thousand, and the severe is it's more than five thousand. There is a you know classification of Hyperesthesia, as you put it. So, any patient with less than 1,500 counts, I would not really subject him to many investigations. Uh, hello? Yeah, are you, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you, yes. For a moment, we lost you, but we can hear you now. Uh, Anup, can you hear me? Yes, sir, we can hear you. Guru sir, we are able to hear you. I think he has a network issue. Guru sir, you seem to be unmuted. Right? You seem to be muted. Yeah, can you can you please speak something? Can you say something? There seems to be a technical which is he logged off, he'll be probably logging in again. <clears throat> so while he logs in back, uh, Praneet, the whole idea, I remember earlier we were talking about uh, 
uh, empiric dewarming in uh, in indian subset knowing that we are in a pandemic zone is that uh, or endemic zone is that something which is still valid are you in your in your local patients are you advocating doing uh, empiric dewarming every 6 months or one year or something like that no no i am not doing it but i believe probably it makes sense it's just that uh, you don't have enough uh, confidence or a protocol to do it and i think it is all individual practice uh, persons who believe it are probably doing it uh, i or at least we are practicing it probably in urban part of the uh, city so i i don't think this is quite common but uh, maybe still wrong at least i am not practicing it anu guru sir are you logged in back again yeah i'm logging back to some problems so sorry with the connection okay no so, no i used to catch the last part of panit's conversation and you know uh, i would like to tell you that there is actually a, an index given for hookworm infestation in india it's called the chandler index so uh, it's the amount of like you know over the this you pass out of of the hookworm and that's how endemic it is in our country that they have to actually classify the the burden of the hookworm so i don't think we are wrong in empirically giving a drug like albendazole empirically uh, it doesn't cause much harm apart from causing little you know kind of cramps in the tummy after you take it and some people complain to get this that's why we give it in bedtime uh, so it's very safe to give an empirical albendazole and not overly investigate a patient with mild hyperesthesia where you tend to investigate is a person who is like coming with probably other symptoms if i suggest uh, so let me come to the cause of dysphagia one is most common is parasitic infections as somebody was telling uh anu can you hear me yes sir yes we can hear you yes. apart from pocidio uh, uh, mycosis none of the other fungal scan will cause uh hyperesthesia other thing which commonly seen in our country is allergic bronchopulmonary aspidosis abta so there the patient will come a different uh hello yeah guru sir for some reason you could you keep getting muted for some reason is it's automatically getting muted all right looks like this is going to be one of the day where we are challenged with technical issues uh while guru sir is logging back again uh, if anybody has got any thoughts to share or any questions they can uh, unmute themselves Okay, we are still waiting for Guru Sir to log in. Yeah, so I was just trying to complete my this thing. Uh, so in uh, rheumatological disorders, you have uh, rheumatoid arthritis and palliative disease, Tuskar syndrome as cause of dysphagia. And uh, apart from these, you have the uh, you know monoclonal antibody like uh, dysphagic leukemias or. Uh, something like hyperesthetic syndromes 
Uh, according to WHO, now hypersensitive syndrome is actually a secondary diagnosis, and you should not diagnose a patient primarily as hypersensitive syndrome. So we should look dedicatedly for a reversible cause of hypersensitivity before labeling a patient as hypersensitive syndrome. Uh, so I, I mean, there it there can be myriad reasons for hypersensitivity to occur, and uh, you know we should in our country, I think the most common is still parasites. Second, there's a there's a different entity called tropical pulmonary hypersensitivity where people have Eating infiltrates, they are infected with microfilaria, and they get this uh, intermittent episodes of bronchospasm and cough. So uh, that's also pretty common, uh, uh, you know, condition in our country. And response well to uh, a drug called hetrazan. Uh, I think all of you know about it. Uh, so uh, I think uh, for us, the threshold for really investigating the patient aggressively should be more than five thousand isotherms or isotherms with organ dysfunction. Uh, uh, or probably a rash which looks like the vasculitic rash, uh, or there is definitive evidence of lung involvement, or cardiac involvement, or any other uh, visceral involvement is there to suspect a secondary cause of isophilia. So I would, in my clinical practice, would, uh, probably this patient the index case which we are talking about would deworm the patient first with a, a broad spectrum antiparasitic like albendazole with ivermectin. And uh, there are a lot of medicines which are available over the counter which combine these two drugs. And probably repeat the special count after a couple of days, probably a month time or so, and then take it from there. So, Guru, some question for you: This hetrazan that you mentioned, uh, I remember early on, there were a lot of doctors prescribing it empirically, and then I saw a lot of doctors not prescribing it now. Uh, was you you briefly mentioned the rationale? Could you please elaborate on that? Why was it prescribed, and why we are not seeing? That kind of prescription these days. We are not seeing, but those people are not aware of it. So, I mean, there's something like an overkill nowadays in terms of investigation. Probably, I think that's what I'm saying. You need to understand uh, which country you are in and what is the endemicity of a disease in in that particular scenario. So, uh, I still would say, suppose a patient is from uh, from the either East Godavari or West Godavari district where. Fluorescence uh, in the make and the patient comes with typical sweating infiltrates, history of uh, something like a bronchospastic cough with isnophilia. I would think of uh, I think of it as a as a common and you know probably give hetrazan as a course. I also would look at you said in this index case that for example this patient is a shopkeeper, right? So is a shopkeeper, no? Hello. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So, so what shopkeeper is also important if he deals with uh, books. So uh, books tend to attract because they are organic material. They tend to attract aspergillus molds. So aspergillosis, ABPA uh, would be something. He would be having fungal sinusitis, an aspergillus sinusitis, which is and it, he may not have the typical symptoms of cold, uh, cold and everything. He just manifests as fatigue. So that peripheral might be because of some aspergillus uh, causing hypersensitivity. So aspergillus are other different types, by the way. All need not be pneumonias or ABPA. There's something called hypersensitivity that was aspergillus, so which can just present as simple fatigue and uh, some kind of a dry cough, and the patient has some hives or something coming up. And when you take the history, they will actually have a home which is leaking, and they have molds at the at home, or they have old books in the library which harbors aspergillus spores. Especially when you are doing renovation of home and you are dealing with old furniture, aspergillus becomes very common. So I mean, isnophilia is is a very broad topic, and unless until the isnophil count is more than you know, probably one thousand five hundred, we really don't have to really uh, 
think about it too much in terms of investigation. Just give up the patient and repeat this useful plant after a month's time, and I think it should be fine. So tell me about these allergic components and eosinophilia because a lot of patients, like for example, I have reactive, uh, I shouldn't say reactive airway disease, this atopic dermatitis, where a lot of these syndromes, they kind of come together. We have patients who have allergic rhinitis, urticaria, and uh, this conglomerate of uh, milder uh, versions of these uh, uh, immunological diseases, uh, which also includes uh, some bronchospastic component, not, not in all of them, like you don't have a bronchospastic component. In all of these patients who do have some sort of allergy to something, we don't know what, but otherwise not affecting uh, their major organic life, uh, in those patients, do we expect eosinophil count to be high? Do we expect them to be high for a long period of time? Or we should uh, investigate if EOs are high at some point. Like, how do we how do we take it further? So there's a very interesting entity among cardiology patients that they have asthma sensitivity and they might have allergic rhinitis and nasal polyprosis and a bronchospastic disease. So that's a typical entity where you have asthma sensitivity. Okay, I'm just little, I'm little debating from the question which you asked, but I want our cardiologists to be aware of this this aspect of where there is asthma sensitivity with nasal polyprosis, uh, allergic rhinitis, and bronchospastic disease. Uh, coming to your point that you have a history of allergy and you don't know when to investigate. So basically, uh, allergy is a very broad phenomenon. There are immunologists who actually have done a lot of studies on allergy. There are a lot of theories which have been presenting this forum. It's like you have two sort of time to discuss about it. But uh, there are skill tests which are available and his relevance is still not uh, really known uh, in clinical practice. They'll say you're allergic to cockroach or some vague thing which the report will come in the uh, skin test report. But how to react to it is something which uh, we only have to interpret and think about it, how to react to it. But to put it on a practical perspective, I think uh, uh, some people ask for IgE levels. I'm not really sure uh, uh, to diagnose what because instruction counts are high, IgE levels are going to be high. So IgE levels are to be done only if you're suspecting uh, probably in a patient who has having severe rashes, histophil counts are normal, you're suspecting systemic mastocytosis, then Ig levels help. Or you're planning for a therapy of like omalizumab to be given to a patient, and Ig levels serve as a marker to look at uh, your response to the treatment. So most of the time for a patient with a history of recurrent allergies and cold and cough, I would actually, if the histophil counts are persistently above 1,500, I would ask for a probably a CTPNS to look at polyposis or evidence of any aspergillus colonization and, uh, you know, treat accordingly uh, and take it forward from there. Sir, in the current era, how frequently you end up doing stool analysis for these kind of patients or you think an empiric treatment is the way to go? In this past uh, six years in care, uh, only once have I found a patient. Actually, it was a very interesting case. Uh, it was, he was a farmer who came with uh, severe muscle pains and uh, back pain and everything, uh, all those things. And uh, eventually, uh, he had uh, severe anemia. His stool examination was normal two, three times. But we did an endoscopy and pulled out a worm, actually, from his duodenum. So, uh, so uh, stool examination is extremely uh, subjective. There is no uh, objective criteria to examining a stool. So, 
the pathologist will see what he knows to see, right? And we have to believe it. So, till now, I have not seen a positive report for a stool uh, uh, for OVA and cyst. But, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, in my college days, I have seen a couple of stool examinations which have come positive for uh, either scariasis or, you know, hookworm. Because I believe so. What you what you uh, gave an example of of endoscopy pulling out a worm that that certainly has to be one one in a lifetime or something of that sort. Yes, it was. And, it was. It was. And I also believe that our MBBS education of taking the history where a patient says that there are worms coming out of my anus or stool. I believe that also will be historical, right? I don't think that. These days we are we are having that kind of clinical presentation, or maybe I'm too urban. What do you think? Do you do we see these kind of presentations? Most of the times we have Western commodes where you really cannot see your stool, right? I mean, it's the the stool has sunk into it. So we had Indian toilets before, where you could see your stool <laughs> clearly, and the worms coming out of it. But if the worm comes out, you would you would uh, you would still see it, no, or at least feel it, no. I don't know. I have, I I don't know how. Uh, <laughs> Probably the worms are drowning in the western commode. I don't know. We are not seeing it. That history is not there anymore. But I believe people are not asking for that history anymore. Uh, but yeah, I, I, in our country, I know to to underlining because it's a big forum uh, and like apart from jokes, uh, I think. Uh, Deworming should be uh, should be a norm in uh, everybody. We we deworm children. Pediatricians deworm children, left, right, and center. But in adults, somehow there is some kind of either uh, you know um, knowledge is not there about the intensity of parasitic infections in our country. Somehow that is lacking. A lot of patients with iron deficiency anemia keep coming back with iron deficiency anemia. They are subjected to endoscopy, colonoscopy, CCT, abdomen. Everything comes out to be normal, and you develop them appropriately and their actually anemia settles down. I've, I've had a couple of cases like this where we were, uh, you know, kind of groping in the dark for the cause of anemia, where the gastroenterologists were groping in the dark by doing endoscopies, colonoscopies, capsule endoscopies, CT abdomen, everything was normal. So the worms were not picked up by all these things, no? So eventually we dewormed the patient and the patient was fine. He didn't require any more transfusions or iron supplementation subsequently. And Guru said, last questions, just like we have uh, serological data for H. pylori and for others, I believe, uh, do we have some kind of serology assessment for parasitic infections as well or any kind of intestinal infection? I believe there, there is. I'm not really sure, I know, but uh, actually in stool, uh, uh, to be very honest, there's a technique called a catocats method where you concentrate the stool repeatedly to get the oances out. Recently, we convinced our department to start doing that technique, um, Dr. Jansi, to do the technique uh, to pick up this thing. Um, yeah, uh, but uh, as far as I understand, there is no, we have intermeva histolytica, uh, uh, this thing, uh, serology. For microfilaria, we have histology. Uh, microfilaria antigen is there. Uh, but uh, unfortunately for parasites, there is nothing like a uh, like a serological diagnosis because you rely the fight of the body towards the parasite is from IgE. So ELISA doesn't detect IgE levels. So in the sense that there is no ELISA technique to detect the antibody uh, which are IgE and which form the antibodies against this particular parasite. So we don't have a serological marker, unfortunately. And sir, uh, at what levels or uh, at what eosinophilin numbers we should be suspecting cancer? I know the... the more than 5,000. More than 5,000. 5, yes, so that is severe eosinophilia. 
So, if so a patient some... comes to you with uh, Anup with more than 5,000 eosinophil counts, apart from again deworming him, I would suggest that you there is something called a Jack analysis. Okay. So, uh, it can be myeloproliferative with Jack 2 mutation positive. And there is something called a PGDRA mutation, PGDRB mutation. Basically, it is to understand you have to give hydroxyurea or imatinib. As far as my memory serves, right? Please correct me if I'm wrong, if any hematologist is there. But this is what I remember out of my, uh, whatever I read about Islophilia some time back. So uh, this level comes, uh, this comes only if the Islophil counts are more than 5,000, where you suspect either systemic mastocytosis or Islophilic leukemias or, uh, or myeloproliferative kind of Islophilic uh, uh, malignancies, which are very, very rare, in fact. Uh, so uh, I think that is when that workup should start. And also, one more thing I would also like to tell you is, there's an entity called IgG4 disease, okay, which also presents as allergic symptoms, as allergic rhinitis, as nasal polyps, and the patients have pseudotumors, and they have uh, what we used to term as Mikulik syndrome earlier is IgG4 disease. So if you see Harrison, they say he says that IgG4 disease is a mimic. It's, it's actually called a great masquerader. And it masquerades a lot of tumors or, or uh, you know, other uh, things in the body. In cardiologists, it presents as uh, pericarditis, pericardial involvement, myocarditis, uh, sometimes iotitis. And these patients actually have uh, eosinophilia, uh, which is, and they present as allergies, basically. Allergic rhinitis, tearing from the eyes, uh, nasal polyposis, sinusitis, and they actually turn out to have IgG4 disease. Perfect. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Guru Prasad sir. If anybody has got any questions for Guru sir regarding hyperisinophilia, you can raise your hand or put it in the chat box. I will request uh, uh, Somaraju sir to give his opinion about uh, today's topic and anything that we missed. Somaraju sir. Thank you, Anus and Pranit and everybody. And congratulations uh, for uh, <coughs> scoring a century. <coughs> Uh, not out. Uh, uh, it was a very educative <coughs> overall sessions, uh, whatever I attended. Uh, uh, it's a very good effort at continuing education. Having said that, coming to Isnophilia in relation to uh, practice of cardiology, uh, apart from uh, many other things that are already said, you must keep in mind that uh, Patients who have a prosthetic wall or structural heart disease, they come with recurrent thrombosis, uh, you must rule out underlying synophilia. Uh, you must keep that in mind. And various vasculitis syndromes, uh, some of it are already covered. But uh, I have to re-emphasize the synophilia and tendency for thrombosis and structural heart defects and also particularly prosthetic walls. Thank you. So, sir, is it the high eosinophil count which is leading to thrombosis or uh, they're kind of the byproduct of something else missing, like some malignancy or somewhere, whatnot? Our patients we saw, it was the uh, snowphilia responsible, actually, for a tendency for thrombosis. And we have seen, uh, say, uh, nearly half a dozen patients in the last few years. Uh, some of them are very young and... Uh, uh, many of uh, our colleagues are aware of it, actually. Uh, sir, there is one question which is 
relevant to you rather than any of any one of us having a direct experience i remember uh, back in the day there was a lot of research going on in terms of what kind of metal to use for uh, stents particularly quarry stents and nickel was one of the prominent material even now there are certain uh, structural heart valves where nickel is a predominant component like my valve for example and uh, we hear these stories about patients developing nickel allergies once the uh, implant has been placed have you have you personally encountered these kind of scenarios of nickel uh, allergy presenting as hypereosinophilia or anything of that sort samrajya sir uh, uh, <coughs> yes uh, you are right it can happen and there is another uh, there is an entity called kawani syndrome kawani syndrome uh, allergy to stent material and uh, results in thrombosis etc it is uh, well described actually and uh, you have to keep that in mind whenever uh, a patient with uh, stent uh, has a tendency for thrombosis and eosinophilia uh, etc eosinophil counts will be raised in some of them so sir those patients they end up getting their stent uh, explanted or do they settle down over the period of time what happens uh, we at least we at least we we thought we saw two patients and uh, uh we didn't take out uh, there was no attempt to take out the stent and then they did respond to routine measures uh, in one of them we gave steroids also and they settled down but there was stent thrombosis there was acute myocardial injury etc so this point is this point uh, uh basically needs to be refreshed because uh, as i said there are larger valves but there are larger devices particularly heart valves and uh, uh, then there are uh, self expandable devices all of which have got nickel as a component and uh, if we see anything from our past patients while they are in small numbers they do have uh, allergies to nickel very recently one of my colleagues he had a patient uh, where a taver valve was implanted and post taver the patient had fever going on for close to 2 to 3 months for which uh, pretty much every single workup known to mankind was coming negative and uh, one of the working hypothesis was that he probably developed allergy to the metal which was which was a part of the valve and uh, Uh, this particular valve was made up of nickel and cobalt and cobalt is more tolerated in our body than nickel so it was assumed that uh, this gentleman had nickel allergy the fever had a roller coaster uh, run for about 2 to 3 months i believe and slowly it settled down so while we don't have a definitive diagnosis the working diagnosis is a metal allergy i don't know what his eosinophil counts were it would be interesting to see what those counts were at least uh, uh, for the academic sake i don't have those numbers with me um, but at least from the cardiology aspect device allergies should also be kept in mind when we are dealing with these parameters um anybody else uh, Arun, uh, dr anup yes, uh, while you are uh, on these things i just have to mention the issue related to intestinal worms and passing of worms in the stool uh, it depends upon where you practice If you have a patient coming from uh, Godavari district, uh, the patient is a farmer or agricultural worker. Uh, many of them don't wear a, a footwear, and then they go around uh, um, 
on bare feet and uh, intestinal or uh, infection is still still particularly common uh, if you ask their history some of them do come out clearly that they fast bombs interesting sir i think uh, what you said is correct part of uh, us getting a different set of patient altogether maybe because of the urban population that we cater to for most part i'm sure that the doctors who are practicing in more rural areas they do have a different experience than ours when it comes to when it comes to intestinal infections shankar sir you have something to add uh, uh, our is a endemic area for the this parasitic infections but uh, i have seen many cases uh, in our area the tapeworm infestation is the patient uh, complained of uh, some scaly or sometimes uh, the seed like things passing out in the stools uh, so i asked him to bring the stool uh, for specimen and uh, i could find out uh, the segments of the tapeworm uh, then we gave uh, prajuquantel actually it is not freely available here i got it from more medical from hyderabad then uh, i gave a single dose the patient has passed uh, some uh, we can uh, measure it. it was in meters so we showed it to the our juniors also in the ima uh, so recently we have seen two cases of uh, this uh, tapeworm infestation uh, that uh, whenever the patient complains that he passes some seed like things Uh, or some scales, uh, then we should ask them to bring the sample and the stool specimen, and uh, let us give a trial of uh, prasequantel. Uh, then, uh, so why prasequantel advantage over the niclosamide is the uh, this niclosamide uh, the it uh, uh, dissolves the head of the uh tape worm that's why uh, so here uh, the with the prejuquantel along with the head uh, entire uh, uh, body and the everything will come out so that is the advantage of the prejuquantel and uh, it will be available even in hyderabad freely available uh, in very few shops that is a more medical uh, in bashirwa so uh, we gave it uh, we in two cases we got success with the expulsion of this tapeworm so we should keep in mind when we are thinking talking about parasitic infestations so this tapeworm is also quite common the tinea solium and the tinea saginata the beef and the pork eaters thank you sir for that uh, interesting uh, insight on the tapeworm infection this is this is something that definitely we should uh, keep in mind even if we see it once in our lifetime i think uh, we will remember the anecdote that you shared with us uh, with this i would like to close today's session pranit your closing comments about uh, what we discussed today and what we have achieved so far yeah it is definitely an exciting uh, day today that uh, we could complete 100 episodes uh, there were at times where uh, we were struggling to find topic and uh, attendees but uh, we keep uh, going back to the intention where we started with also the words of encouragement and wisdom from dr somraju sir of uh, doing this session even if there is uh, no audience uh, that was probably one of the important driving 
uh, force to continue and uh, with this we are here and i believe uh, we will be continuing it for quite some time as long as there is juice left in uh, most importantly <clears throat> rather than continuing there is uh, kind of a personal objective here where it made us a better physicians in uh, treating the patients better uh, the uncomfortable feeling uh, of uh, knowing uh, the uh, these gray areas is gone so definitely for me uh, the weekly hurdle has improved me or improved my confidence in the way i practice coming to the session today again this is a gray area and i believe uh, there are still a uh, lot of uh, things that we need to learn but few th- carry home points that i should uh, highlight is that uh, if counts are more than 5000 probably a workup is uh, necessary and should be done by a person with expertise uh, like a physician or a hematology oncologist uh, to evaluate the cause uh, allergies are uh, common and equally so are parasitic infestations india is an endemic country and uh, even though we do not see them it is still worth uh, treating them empirically with uh, uh, anti parasitic agents so deworming is probably something we all should uh, learn and practice it uh, it may not harm but probably definitely helps in a lot of people uh, and uh, uh, these uh, detail history in terms of uh, their uh, occupation and uh, their uh, exposure to books etc probably will help us understand uh, where they are uh, getting these evaluation <clears throat> these are the things that i could uh, learn from today's session anu and it's been a happy journey so far thank you pranit and i can i can pretty much assume that this is the lowest census that we are going to get with dr somaraj and dr shankar being a constant source of support for us and if we can if we can work with uh, this census i believe we can work uh, further as well i don't think it's going to get lower than this so uh, thank you all for being with us uh, this entire time we will continue this and uh, we will see you next wednesday with a new topic uh, that will be on the same time thank you everybody thank you dr shankar thank you dr somaraju thank you dr prasad for for being uh, in today's discussion good night guys <laughs>